Brothers and sisters, have you ever been extremely anxious about something coming up? And if so, you were extremely anxious. Did someone try telling you, just don't worry about it? And if so, did that help at all? Not likely, right? It's often given advice, but it's not the most helpful advice. That kind of question, it might come to mind when we look at texts in the New Testament especially, texts like Philippians 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It sounds sort of like Paul is just telling us, don't worry about it. As one article on that text said, Thanks, Paul. I have some advice for you too. How about don't be trapped in a Roman prison? Thankfully, the Bible says a lot more than just don't be anxious. God knows that our inclination is to worry. In this world, we seem to have lots of cares and concerns, lots of things to worry about, whether it be our physical health, others' health, so many problems throughout this world. And God even tells us that when we do have worries, and he knows that we will, he tells them to cast our anxieties on him. And in our text for this afternoon, Luke 12, uh, Jesus gives us what some have called a treatment for anxiety. It's a wonderful truth to begin to calm our anxious hearts. And the treatment Jesus describes is to remember and to trust in the Father Almighty. So we'll consider our belief in the Father Almighty this service. And first we'll consider just the fact that God is Almighty. And then secondly we'll consider that God is our Father. So first of all, God is Almighty. So for you, what springs to your mind when you think of the almighty power of God? I think most of us immediately think about how huge our God is, how magnificent he is, how, how transcendent he is. And that's certainly a part of what it means that our God is almighty. Our God is truly massive, incomprehensible. One commentary on the catechism tries to help us begin to imagine the incomprehensible grandeur of our God in this way. The author says, Imagine for a moment that we could reduce the whole earth to the size of a little marble and place it on the floor. We could then place another smaller marble two feet away from earth. The second marble would be the moon. 300 feet away from the earth marble, we could set a volleyball, the sun. The sun is our nearest star. If we wanted to include in our little diagram the next closest star, we would have to place a ball in China. Because although the sun is 93 million miles away from the earth, the second closest star is 300,000 times further. There are nine planets, well eight now, that circle the sun. And planet earth is not the biggest. But in the depth of space are countless other stars and planets, somehow kept together by whirling masses we call galaxies. And planet Earth is but a pinprick in space. Not to mention that each of us is a tiny little pinprick on that pinprick. And on the little Earth marble, he says, this little pinprick, if the crust of the marble sh shifts just a little bit, then the Earth quakes under our feet. Our proudest buildings 
tumble and crumble to the ground. And our little marble is it has an invisible blanket of air around it, the atmosphere. And if that blanket were to be pulled away for an hour or so, everything on earth would be burnt to a crisp by the unfiltered heat from the sun. And on this tiny marble, with its many millions of tiny people, we make this confession of faith that we just read. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. These small persons on this tiny earth, the speck in the universe, claim that God is their Father. And our God is Almighty. He's the one who flung these massive stars into space. How many stars, I wondered. And so, according to Google, astronomers' best guess for now is that there are about 200 billion trillion stars in space. If creation is that large, think for a minute. How big is our creator? I can't tell you how big he is, except for with the words of Solomon at the dedication of the temple. All we can say is that the heavens, let alone the earth, cannot contain him. And so I don't know about you, but when I think of our God as almighty, this is what I typically think of. Just how big and powerful and transcendent, seemingly far off, our God is. And yet, the Bible goes in another direction as well. We can think, for example, of Isaiah 40, which we spoke about uh, in an afternoon service uh, a couple months ago. Uh, Maybe you remember Isaiah chapter 40. There we read that the great nations of the earth are to God like a drop of water in a bucket. And great nations like Russia and China and the United States are like dust on the scales. They don't even register. The oceans are measured, we're told in Isaiah 40, in the palm of God's hand. And yet, as this commentator on the Catechism said, the reasoning about our Almighty God in Isaiah 40 is the exact opposite of our inclination to think this great, awesome God must be transcendent and far off. Instead, Isaiah says, thinking of how great and powerful this God is, that uh, the nations are to dust uh, before him. He says, how could you possibly say that this God doesn't know you? This God knows everything. Of course he knows you. In the words of Isaiah, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right uh, is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow faint nor grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases his strength. A God as mighty as this, Isaiah is saying, do you worry he doesn't know you? Of course he knows you. He knows everything. Do you worry he doesn't care about you? He does care about you more than you could know. That's our belief in God, the Father Almighty. Our God's almighty nature, his almighty power, is shown not just in uh, the great huge things he creates and upholds, but his great almighty nature is shown in how he also knows and intimately upholds even the smallest parts 
of his creation. He cares even for little Israel, even for little people like us. As we just saw in baptism, this almighty God, creator of the universe, he cares about our littlest children. That is part of his almighty nature. That's what Jesus is getting at in Luke chapter 12. Jesus says, if you see a bird, and he doesn't just say any bird, he says, if you see a raven, we need to realize ravens were unclean birds. They were scavengers. They were looked down upon. They were a nuisance. They were useless for eating and for sacrifices. Well, Jesus says, if you see a raven eating, you don't just see them finding food. Instead, look at the text. What do you see? What you really see is the great God of the universe is feeding them. Isn't that remarkable? Imagine that. Likewise, Jesus goes on to say, wildflowers that you see springing up on the side of the road, they're not just there by chance. Nothing is there by chance. Jesus says, that's your almighty God of the universe, clothing the grass of the field. Isaiah, or sorry, rather, Psalm 147. It's one of the greatest texts in this regard to show the almighty nature of our God, not just being huge, but being close, sustaining every part of his creation. So often we can think of nature as just running its course. Sir, God created it, but now it just seems to run by itself like clockwork. The sun rises and sets, and the seasons turn, and rain falls and flows and evaporates and goes again. But in Psalm 147, we read there's a lot more to it than that. Verse 4 says, It is the Lord who covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. We read in verse 16, He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. He makes the wind blow and the waters flow. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, verse 30, as we confess in the catechism as well, it gets even more miraculous than this. We confess not just that the rain is in God's hand, that he's the one scattering the snow and feeding the birds, but Matthew, Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, verse 30, every single hair on your head is numbered by this massive God. Now that is an almighty God, isn't it? What a God we serve. An almighty God who made even the greatest, who flung billions of trillions of stars into space and upholds even every single hair on your head. That is power. That is the God we worship and serve. As I was working on this sermon, I was reminded of something that happened to a friend quite recently. Someone was having a very difficult and sad conversation with their daughter. One they had been having, dreading having for a while. And they prayed fervently that it would go well. But they, was, they were still nervous. So afterwards, after the conversation, we asked how it went. And they told us afterwards, by God's grace, it went extremely well. Better than they could have possibly imagined or hoped. And right afterwards, they said... The brightest and most beautiful rainbow lit up the sky. And while they were telling us this, they said something along the lines of, I know we don't really believe in this stuff, but it felt like, in a way, God did that for us. 
And we assured them, oh no. We entirely, 100%, God did that with you in mind. And now don't get me wrong. We don't arrogantly think that we're the center of the universe and that God is pulling everything around and orchestrating things just for us. No, we are not the center of this universe. But on the other hand, brothers and sisters, we confessed it. We've heard it. We do not believe in chance. And we do believe that this almighty God, he knows exactly what he's doing. And so we assured them, we are confident that you can thank and praise God for that rainbow. And trust that he sent it, maybe not just for you, but he certainly sent that rainbow with you in mind. Because we would never dare say that God didn't know what he was doing. God always knows exactly what he's doing. We're not deists. That's people who believe that God is hands off in this world and it just runs. No, as we summarize in Lord's Days 9 and 10, God still upholds and governs heaven and earth and all that is in them by the eternal, his eternal counsel and providence. And indeed, all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. And that, brothers and sisters, is the beginning of the treatment of our anxiety. Us little humans on this tiny pinprick called earth hurling through space, we confess, that's my almighty God. Now that leads us to our second point, our awesome Father, our second and final point. And I was really struck by this recently. And if you're anything like me, often when we think of the first person of the Trinity, we first of all think of him as creator. That makes sense. But really, what we should perhaps first think of him as is, of course, actually a father. There's one well-known American politician who often says, I'm a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican in that order. And he says that in order to tell you what's most foundational, most core to his identity. Well, I find it fascinating to think that in eternity, before the beginning of Genesis 1, verse 1, before God created the heavens and the earth, already then, core to our God's being, the first person of the Trinity was a father. And the second person of the Trinity was a son. That's how he reveals himself throughout his word. That's what the catechism means when we confess that God the Father is the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's always been a Father. God the Father is and always will be a perfectly loving Father. It's central to His being. It's part of His core identity as our triune God, which again, you'll hear more about next week. Sorry about that. As one Christian author notes, the first person of the Trinity has many names. Almighty One, Creator, Most High, the Great I Am. But when Jesus came to tear away the veil so we could look into the heart of God, he revealed God as Father. Jesus used the word Father more than any other description or name for God. And he taught us to address God in the same way, our Father who is in heaven. Father is God's self-revealed designation. And of course, we need to remember, God was Father first, before anyone else was ever Father Fathers in this world were just copies of the one through whom fatherhood gets its name, as we read in Ephesians chapter 3. 
Fathers in this world are just shadows or images of the true father, the first father. Especially since the fall into sin, even the very greatest fathers in this world are just a poor, faint reflection of what our God's true fatherhood looks like. Jesus tells us this himself in Matthew 7, verse 9 to 11. Very famous verses. Jesus asks us there, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I saw a post online recently about how someone was kind of nervous. They were kind of afraid to ever mention in casual conversation around their father that there was a certain item that they had been eyeballing, something they had been looking for, or that they might like to have, that they might even be a little bit interested in. And they said it was because they knew if their dad heard this, he would drop everything to search high and low, and he would not rest until he hunted down that thing for his kids. I know my dad, he's much the same way. And I know that as a dad myself, few things bring me more joy in life than giving my sons exactly what they want or what they need. Well, here Jesus tells us that self-sacrificial love of a father, that's just a dim reflection of our true, almighty, heavenly father. The real father, the first father. Again, uh, this is where uh, what Jesus says in uh, the text that we just read uh, earlier in Matthew. This is what Jesus goes to as well in Luke chapter 12. It reminds us about the self-sacrificial love of our Father and how if our evil fathers know how to give good gifts, and they certainly do, how much more will he give what we need, give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus goes there in Luke chapter 12. He's talking to his disciples, his followers. And he realizes that often in our lives we have struggles and problems and we often feel small and weak and assaulted. He's talking to his disciples, his first disciples in particular. And he knew that they certainly had suffering like that coming as well. And that's what Jesus is preparing them for after his death. And so he tells these disciples, who seem so weak and small, he tells them, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so we can trust that our Heavenly Father is happy to provide what we need. It's his good pleasure that can also be translated his glad choice or his delight to give us the kingdom so we might dwell with him again, uh, living under his rule and blessing. And he sent his son to do just that. Brothers and sisters, this is a great joy in good times. And it's such a comfort in hard times as well. That's what Lord's Day 10 summarizes for us. It says, good things and bad things come from our Father. Leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, health and sickness, riches and poverty, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. This almighty God of the universe who knows all things, who knows you and I better than we know ourselves, he wants what's best for us, and he truly knows what's best for us. It is his good pleasure, his delight, to give us his kingdom. And fathers can't always give their kids exactly what they want or ask for. So often fathers need to say no or not yet and give them what they need instead, what's good for them instead. And sometimes we need good things and our God is so glad to give them. Sometimes though, what we need is painful and our good father doesn't hold back. 
He's willing to give those things to for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. And what does it benefit us to know this, the Catechism asks? Well, it says, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future. We can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. Because this Almighty Father really loves us and cares for us. And brothers and sisters, how can we know? How can we know today and how can we know tomorrow that it really is his good pleasure, his delight to give us the kingdom? How can we know that when things seem hard and painful, it seems like he's not giving us what a good father would give us? How can we know that he does care? That he is a good father, even when things go hard, not just when things go great? Brothers and sisters, it's by looking to the cross. There we see, without a doubt, our Father, this huge God, what is man that he is mindful of him? But he is mindful of him. How much does this awesome Father care for you and me, tiny little pinpricks on a tiny little pinprick, sinful little human beings? He cares that his little flock won't be crushed, as Jesus says. And for to that end, the good shepherd came and laid down his life that we might never be crushed. If anyone's ever looked into adoption at all, they likely have realized that adoption can, depending on how you do it, it can be extremely expensive. I just want to lay before you today that there is no adoption in the history of the universe more expensive than yours and mine. What did it cost God the Father to have us back as dearly beloved sons and daughters after we rebelled in the garden and rebelled with our whole lives? It cost him sending his own dearly beloved son from eternity that he would take on flesh, lay down his life. And Jesus did it willingly to bring us back to God, to be his dearly beloved children forever. That was the ultimate thing for the perfect father to give up his own dearly beloved son. Now that he has done that, will he not now also graciously give us all things? Having given his son's life for us, will he not get us across the finish line as well? Absolutely he will. And this very God who, and father who upholds and governs us, upholds and governs all things as with his hand. Not one thing is out of his control. And he protects us and provides for us. He instructs us and he disciplines us. He encourages us and comforts us. And sometimes, as with a well-timed rainbow, this is extremely clear. Sometimes this gets extremely hard to see. But even when it's hard to see, that doesn't make it any less true. There have been a couple of times that I've heard this story. Now, this version of it is told by Brian Chapel, a great a preacher. He says that in Tennessee, there's a PCA church that has a strange memorial plaque that simply has on it these words. The moon is round. It's a memorial to a 14-year-old girl who died of cancer. Her cancer was diagnosed two years before she died. And it must have seemed like a terribly brief time to her parents, of course. But to her, it was a long time of reflection, of thinking about her faith, her gracious heavenly father, her perfect elder brother, Jesus Christ. She collected in a notebook Bible verses, stories, 
thoughts that were meaningful to her during her time of suffering. And when she passed on to be with the Lord forever, her family looked into the notebook, and inside was an index card that just had the words on it, the moon is round. The family, of course, was perplexed at first. They couldn't understand the words until they read deeper into her notebook and they found the explanation. Though the stages of the moon and the clouds of the world may at times disclose only a sliver of the moon, we still know the moon is round. So also the reality of God's love for you and me in this world. Going through stages of life, the clouds of suffering may seem to deny his heart, but through Jesus Christ, we still know that God is love. Just as much as we know, the moon is round. As Lord's Day 9 puts it so beautifully, the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them, is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father. In him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as Almighty God. He is willing also as a faithful Father. This is Jesus Christ's treatment for anxiety in Luke 12. Does it remove all anxiety? No. But it's a start, isn't it? Jesus asks, who of us by worrying can add even a single hour, the Greek could be translated, just a moment to his life. With our Father in control, who would want to be even for a moment out of his fatherly hand? Our Almighty God and Father, for the sake of Christ, has stored up for us in heaven, as Jesus Christ says, a treasure that does not fare, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Amen.